I'm going to just keep working because at the end of the day, like I want to create that body of work. Like, I'm not saying that's a healthy balance, but this year I just, I was just like, I'm not going to go outside. So fuck it. <laughs> like, like let's, let's just get this done. You know, do you know what I mean? But I have that fire, I think. And I say to every writer that I speak to, like find your fire, find the thing that makes you have a unique voice. And then kind of just build from that. And like my fire for me, is like, People always kind of being like, oh, yeah, you're not going to be a journalist. You'll be a business journalist. And then, like, I did that, didn't like it, and then shifted, really. And that's kind of where I'm at, yeah. From Central Source and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Source, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. My name is Ryan Gore and I'm a writer at Central Source. Uh, you won't find much of me on the website this week, but uh, keep an eye out for our end of year content coming out on January 1st. Today I'm here with Brandon Hill. How's it going? Brandon Hill, uh, writer and editor at Central Source. I've got a lot of really cool stuff coming up. Um, two of them that I can talk about. I've done an interview with Chris Patrick that should be out by the time this podcast airs on his new album. And I've got a featured interview coming out on Brittany Carter as well. And another thing that I'm not going to talk about yet, but should have an excellent feature piece coming out sometime soon. So you can keep a lookout for that by subscribing to my newsletter in the link in my bio on Twitter at Hoopla Hill. Yep. And I'm here with Brand- uh, Mickey Hellerback. <laughs> What's going on? This is Mickey Hellerback, writer at Central Sauce. Um, I just recently dropped uh, my first Why We Like It in a while, um, which is our introductory discovery pieces on uh, the platform with uh, Mazin, who's from Ottawa, Canada. Um, I have two more of those coming out um, soon. I believe they should come out around the 16th, 18th, 20th. Um, I just released an interview with... uh, three-time Tony nominee Joshua Henry about an introductory piece on Euphoria magazine about his uh, new single. And I have a couple more interviews coming uh, on there as well. Follow me on Twitter at Mickey Montebello for all updates. Sure thing. Do all that. Okay. So for this episode of the podcast, we are getting the source directly from the source. We will be speaking to a man who I see as the international authority on freelancing. Three years into the game and his resume is nothing short of impressive, having written for The Independent, The Guardian, The BBC, Vice, OK Player, The Telegraph, Dazed, Wired, and so, so, so many more. His latest venture see him, sees him flexing his muscles as a hip-hop expert in the podcasting world. His show, Exit the, Exit the 36 Chambers, created alongside, alongside Sam Davis and Omar Saleh, is a multifaceted celebration of hip-hop with guests that range from underappreciated artists to the very best of music journalists. This man's career is a journalistic masterclass. Please welcome to Insert a Source, Thomas Hobbs. Thomas Hobbs, thank you for coming on to the show. Yeah, it's good to be here. It's good to be here. I love what you guys are doing. We love what you're doing, man. This whole year, man. 2020's been insane, but <laughs> it feels like every other every other day there's a new Thomas Hobbs piece out. <laughs> so how do you stay motivated, man? Like, how's the motivation been in 2020? It's wild uh, even having this kind of conversation because 
I think for a long time I was like, is anyone reading this shit? <laughs> so it's good to hear that. But no, I would say my motivation probably comes from, um, I don't know, my dad passed away when I was quite young. Sorry to take it deep straight away. What a download. <laughs> but like he, um, he passed away when I was quite young and my mum kind of raised me alone. Um, worked kind of five, six, seven jobs, you know, clean, did everything she could. Um, I don't know, like that kind of, see, that kind of just instilled this fire in me. It's like, I don't know, a lot of the people in the UK media establishment are quite like middle class from quite wealthy backgrounds. Whereas like I, no one ever went to college or university, um, in my family or anything like that. Um, and I was always kind of told you can't do this. And it was like, I don't know. I just always kind of felt like I could do it and I would do it. And it's like the, the reason I try and champion, you know, writers like you guys is because. I don't know, like, I just think so often people are so competitive in this thing. And it's like, I want to be competitive, but I think you can do that without stepping in people's ways as well. That makes any kind of sense. So, yeah, I've just been kind of trying to maintain that mentality. But yeah, I would just say that for me, it's like, it's about creating that body of work because, uh, my, my dad passed away when he was like 34. Um, I'm 30 now. So it's like, for me, it's like, I, I want to do all this work. Like, I, I'm obsessed with artists like Ofri Greedo, like, Tupac, like, uh, new artists like Lord Apex even, um, because th they'll create, like, 30, 40 songs in, like, two days. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, I'm so obsessed with those artists. For me, it's like, I'm going to just keep working because at the end of the day, like, I want to create that body of work. Now, I'm not saying that's a healthy balance, but this year, I just, I was just like, I'm not going to go outside. So fuck it. <laughs> like, like, let's, let's just get this done. You know, do you know what I mean? But I have that fire, I think. And I say to every writer that I speak to, like, find your fire, find the thing that makes you have a unique voice and then kind of just build from that. And like my fire for me is like people always kind of being like, oh, yeah, you're not going to be a journalist. You'll be a business journalist. And then like I did that, didn't like it and then shifted really. And that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah that kind of background kind of helped. And it was like, yeah, I just, I just started out in business journalism. Like my first job was at a place called the Fresh Produce Journal. Like my job was to write about brassica growers and make it sound interesting. I had to make broccoli <laughs> farmers sound like the shit. And then I ended up like at this trade magazine called The Grocer. I had to break six exclusive news stories a week, right? That the nationals would like pick up and all this crazy shit. And the whole time it was just like, why am I not being a music journalist? Because people just kept telling me, oh, you couldn't do that. And it's like, I think once you get to that point where you realise that's just all noise, if you've got your focus and you believe in your talent, do you know what I mean? Just keep doing it. And I think, I hope to think editors are starting to realise like I have that drive and it's like, I'm not just sitting in a house that my fucking, I don't know, my trust fund dad um, yeah. is paid for, putting my feet up, you know what I mean? Like typing out a few articles here and there. That's not, not what I'm doing. It's like something that drives this. Like, and yeah, that might all sound a bit like X factor bullshitty, but like, I don't know. Like, that means a lot to me. And I'd seem to just be honest. What, uh, what's the most yeah, interesting just... story you ever wrote on broccoli farming? Oh my what, God. What was the Thomas Hobbes <laughs> spin on broccoli farming? I think there was like some disease in like a crop one year, um, which was a big disaster. I remember there was like, 
all this corruption at like mushroom farms <laughs> with like, like honestly and it was like the underworld of mushroom farming yeah like and i got an interview with um jamie oliver which was like i was like oh this is the best thing ever <laughs> um so it was like back back then that honestly it meant the world but i don't regret that like i like yeah, that and yeah. it's like for me it was like that taught me i had to speak to some of the in all honesty the dullest Honestly, supermarket CEOs, like the CEO of Walmart is the dullest cunt on earth. I promise <laughs> you. Like, these guys are so fucking dull. And it's like, if you, if your job is to speak to these people and get good quotes out of them, mm. when you come, when you come to actually writing about something you love, like music, it's like those skills in bed with that. And it's just, I don't know. Like I, I pride myself. It's like, if I'm interviewing someone, I want them to tell me five things at least that they've never told anyone else. And I'm like, I'm failed if I've not. And it's like, that comes from business journalism and being told, come away with four stories, come away with, do you know what I mean? So it's like, I don't want to make it seem like a mechanical thing because I I love it and it's natural. But Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's just kind of the journalistic side of me. It's like, I, I think I know how to, I tried to know how to make people at ease and just talk frankly um, because you know, I, and I want to be on their side too. You know what I mean? Like I want to champion artists that I genuinely love. Like I want this body of work to reflect people that I love because you could just be a cynic and interview artists you hate all the time. But I think the colorful copy and the copy that really stays with people a lot of the time, I'm not saying you should be like best friends with artists or anything like that, but yeah. if you really fuck with the music as well, like yeah. that can always give a piece heart. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, it's impossible for it not to come through on like on the page, right? Yeah, like the best articles, the ones that you remember is when you have a shared experience with the writer. Like you can tell then through the enthusiasm matches yours, and you kind of get that that feeling. That's what journalism is really meant to do. Um, speaking of artists championing artists, like who's been getting you through twenty twenty? What album's been getting you through? Definitely Greedo. Like, um, I don't know, just something about that guy's music. Um, just the pain that's transferred into it. Like, I think if you've experienced loss on any level, not just at a hood level, because obviously I can't relate to that, but mm. there's something about his vocals that just grab you and it's quite therapeutic. So like, I just listen to substance and all the time and just chill, chill out. But in terms of like new artists that have broke this year, I think like Shy Gal is incredible. Um, I like how that album is just so inventive and just like makes you want to dance as well as kind of think. Um, that um car um album descendants of kane as well like yeah it's great yeah like rock marciano like those are the artists i'm getting lost in but like all the artists we have on the podcast as well like i try and listen to like new artists a lot because i just think i i don't want to become someone who just like listens to the same legacy artists all the time so like yeah because i i found myself in that trap probably about five years ago and i think embracing new artists is so important like evolving your ear constantly as a critic because it's like if you're just like caught up in the same thing like i always try and listen to new stuff like through chris crack i'm listening to like all the underground chicago acts that like i've got like 1000 followers on spotify because you want to find that those stories and then if you can help that artist do you know what i mean get get a career and you really believe in their mission statement that's just like a really nice thing to be behind and I think for me it's like that's why I would always kind of like the idea of going into like a and and things like that because like I don't know like I think having that having that bond with an artist is su- such a good thing I think sometimes it's great though obviously to have tension 
with an artist like you don't want it just to be kiss arsey and i don't think like my pieces <laughs> are that but i think i just love i love that feeling of like finding new artists and like getting people to listen to them and have that same love affair you know when you listen to something it just grabs you and it's like fuck like yeah like i kind of want to try and translate that that's my whole kind of thing and it's like that i probably just get that off people like jeff wise or like um you know like or gary suarez or craig jenkins like all their articles when you read them it's like so vivid mm-hmm. and poetic and heartfelt and stuff like that and it's like they're the writers i kind of look up to i think and I just kind of want to do that. I don't, I'm not saying I'm even on that level. Like that's a level I aspire to be on, but like you got to aim high. Do you know what I mean? And they're the kind of people for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you mentioned Chris Crack and um, he had your number one album this year, right? Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Yeah. And you interviewed him on the, was it the first episode of Exit of 36 Chambers? Yeah. Yeah. Chris is just um, incredible. I think he's just got such a surreal, kind of voice you can imagine him meshing well with Madlib and mm. Doom type beats and he's working with Madlib actually but yeah no I love him I love how he puts out like four mixtapes in a year <laughs> yeah and he seems like the most lovely dude like such a positive yeah, kind of guy yeah really wavy guy like that guy has smoked probably every strain of weed on in existence <laughs> <laughs> you can kind of hear that when you listen to the music can't you it's quite like I don't know it's quite like Max speed out <laughs> yeah 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 for sure so yeah, speaking of the podcast, man, what was the inspiration behind starting the Exit Thirty Six Chambers? Yeah, I would say it was just kind of, I, like I think podcasts. There's this like there's this TV channel in the UK and it's called BBC Four, and um, you probably you know I'm sure you know of it, like, but it always has these like dire fucking talking head music documentaries, yeah. and it's basically just like a bunch of forty seven year old white man like went to harvard just talking about why artists are important and like really boring edited not even just white just the way it's edited is just so stuffy and it's like i kind of wanted to do a podcast that was a bit more than just like repeating ad ad nauseum what the headlines are like in the media and just being like what do you think of that um so i think we kind of wanted to like create a platform that champions um, new artists gives them a platform or underrated artists or stories that don't get um, because I think at the end of the day like if you can go away from a podcast actually with a love affair of a new artist you'd never heard before that's like a beautiful thing opposed to just like learning what Dave thinks about the Stormzy Wiley beef like like, <laughs> like it's good like whatever like we d- we say our views but like I think it's much more interesting if you present it from a fresh way I think for me, that's one of the things that you guys do the best. Like, I'm a big interview head. Like, I really like, you know, following different interviewers and seeing how they use certain tactics and stuff. And you guys, you interview all these artists that I'm, like, not super familiar with. But every single time I come away from that interview, like, engaged with their music and, like, engaged with the artist. So, you know, is there some kind of trick to that? Or how do you do that so successfully? Wow, that's so nice of you to say, man. Um, yeah, I love your podcast as well. I did. I didn't just say that. Like, I genuinely <laughs> have listened to it. I like how you kind of spotlight articles um, and really talk about it as a form of storytelling, which I think is really important. But like the podcast, I just think the key is is like I, I wanted to launch a rap podcast with like another journalist, like who I didn't even know, never even really met. Um, just because I felt like our writing styles meshed and it didn't work out, but it was the kind of best thing for me because with Sam and Omar, it's like 
we're we're best friends outside of this. We hang out. We listen to like finals together and get drunk together and just hang out. And um, so we were already having these experiences of just coming out and talking. So it's it's natural and it's like we put the work in. Like before this first episode launched, whenever it was, let's say it was October, we literally recorded every week for four months before launching it. Because for me, it was like I thought I don't want to launch it. I'm prepared. I don't want to sound like I'm winging it. I want this to have depth to it. I want us to sound like we've got natural chemistry. So we put the work in every week. We can't, we treated it like a real business, like, like, like it was a thing, even though none of us are getting paid for it or anything like that. Um, and I think that came across like when the, when hopefully when the show, show people listen to the show, I think it's that chemistry. And it's like when you get a guest on, the worst thing you can do is kind of make them seem like they're the other, like, do you know what I mean? Like the kind of outside celebrity, oh, wow, like in awe of them. And <laughs> I think the best thing you can do is just let them into your environment. So it's like that artwork with the living room. That's like you just coming in to us hanging out. And that's the feeling I wanted them to kind of translate along with me to like the guests kind of thing. And exit the 36 chambers just kind of means exiting that fascination with the golden era and embracing the next wave like i i think you're irrelevant as a critic the second you you stop embracing the next sound and you're like it was better in this day or like when you see like hip-hop heads and they're like um or, or like let's just say like let's just say boom back rappers and they come out and they're like it's all mumble rap it's so like i, I can't think of anything worse than being the person who doesn't embrace <laughs> that next thing and i think there's a lot of other people who feel like that and it's like I hope the podcast can be the fucking kind of genesis of all that kind of stuff. Not the genesis of all that, but like the kind of, um, let's just say like the kind of product of that way of thinking. Yeah. Actually, yeah, the antidote. an interesting note too. I said that you interview a bunch of rappers that I'm not familiar with, but actually um, Five Steez, I used to listen to Five Steez back in high school, the oh, War and Peace <laughs> album. And yeah. so that was like a major throwback to me because I had gone so long from like, like me and my friends listened to him in high school. And then like I went to college and as I got away from my high school friends, it just sort of like fell out of my listening. And I hadn't heard anything about him until you brought him back up on the podcast. And that was well, such a huge well, that's throwback. The that's the thing though. Like there's these certain artists who like, they put out great music and then maybe like it doesn't sell really well. And then publications just decide they're past their sell by date. We're never going to cover that artist again, even though they continue to put out great work, which is just like begging to be rediscovered. So like, he's a great example of that. Like he's still putting out great material and it's like, I don't care if it's got 500 listens, like Mr. Strange, the guy in the first episode, openly gay UK rapper. He's got less than like, Five thousand, like maybe I don't know. Like he hasn't got like a lot when we when when we went to him and J.L. Woods, who's like who's done well, but he's a very cult fan, you know, fan base. And it's like, you know, he hasn't dropped anything like that the average hip hop heads probably heard. I don't mean that in a condescending way either, but like, mm-hmm. but so so for me, it's like I don't want to just get the hip new thing. Like you could say someone like Lord Apex or like Masterpiece represents that, but. J.L. Woods, Five Steez, uh, Norman Whiteside, he's like 68 and was in prison for like 33 years. Like these aren't the templates for that. It's, it's just the, we, we want to spotlight the artists from a kind of wide array of backgrounds because so often in the media landscape, 
of really interesting stories are ignored because there's this fascination that will only cover people that are represented by A-list publicists or, um, you know, are a really cool label or have a really big cosign. But sometimes, like, they're not the people making the most interesting music. Like, everyone in this room, like, listen to Big, everyone listening by J.L. Woods. Listen to the song Big. That is just, like, next-level hip-hop. So, like, you know, what gets me up in the morning is kind of trying to convince people of that. That just because, like, I don't know, let's say Dazed <laughs> or High Stability, just because they haven't, like, spotlighted it doesn't mean it's not great. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that kind of plays into what my favourite part of the show is, which is its dynamism. And it's kind of... I like how all the conversations you have speak to something larger. Not all the conversations, but a lot of the conversations you have speak to something larger in society. Like you, the interview with Mr. Strange that you talked about. Um, you talked about um, the sexism in rap, misogyny in rap, all these different things. Was that, was that something that you wanted to do going to the show, make sure you speak to something bigger yeah, than I'm, just I'm the music? I think um, I'm glad you picked up on that. It's choking me up because, honestly, I've never been spoken to about my work in this way. So I, I look a bit uncomfortable <laughs> and odd on camera because <laughs> it is genuinely a humbling um, experience. But I would say... Um, um, I would say definitely like I wanted to kind of personally I wanted to spotlight the stories and voices that so often get ignored and like in UK like homophobia is still a very big thing in UK rap and I think that was really kind of important to spotlight it's like we're doing a drill special um, UK drill special for episode 10 and like so so we've got like La Vida Loca who's this like incredible um, female rapper who calls herself um, the king of drill um king of uk drill even though she's a woman and, and just talks about like mm. like macking women and men is like sex fluid and just empowering and incredible mm. and it's like we could have just got on you know x male kind of drill rappers but the reason we want someone like Lavida vida on is because she's like breaking the boundary she's pushing the envelope and it's kind of like I guess we want to get people that are doing that and, and kind of try and I know it's, it, you know, it's, it, it's our aspiration, but we want to kind of have subjects that try and attempt that too. And I think so often like stuff like Taylor Crumpton's article about, um, about like alter egos and female rap, like those stories aren't often talked about as like big cultural moments, but I think they are because like they speak to a wider significance. And I think the misogyny thing so often you don't hear like male, you know, you won't hear the Breakfast Club and or whoever, and it's like they talk about it in such a cringe-worthy way. They've got like Russell Simmons on, and they're kissing his ass, and like all this kind of stuff. I wanted to just yeah. have an edge where it's like we're not that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because so many publications have like a day where it's like this is bad. Yeah. Anyway, here's a two-hour-long interview with this rapper that we can place <laughs> on pedestal who perpetuates all those things that we just said are bad. You know. So it's good to see you just, like, make a stand literally in the first episode, like, yo, we're going to go there, you know? This isn't going to be the typical thing of, like, yeah, we're going to talk about Illmatic for three hours every week, you know? So I really appreciated that. I'm excited um, for that, uh, the the kind of the drill episode, because there is this kind of undercurrent that's starting to really happen for, for female rappers in drill, specifically, like, uh, Ivorian Doll from UK is really kind of yeah. starting to make movements she's really amazing and then um the the rapper who i'll look up after this i've never heard of her but dream doll who's like brooklyn drill is also kind of has that like kind of fluidity to her as well that's really cool 
so yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that. As, as no, no, I thank added. you. So it's um, it's a good. I think it's one of our best episodes. I think the current episode though, where we have like Norman Whiteside, who basically um, he released this album in 1997, um, 1977, sorry, um, called "You Can Fly on My Airplane," and it's like as good as any Marvin Gaye album. I stand by that. And wow. he uh, went to prison so contentiously. He wasn't even like connected to the crime but because he was in dirty and the state wanted to lock every black person up behind that crime mm. you know he went into prison for so many years like it was like a running joke among the guards that he shouldn't be there um and while he was in prison this album got sampled by like kanye west mad lib um like freddie gibbs rick ross jay electronica frank ocean um and he's in prison and hip hop is quite literally changing his life. He get nominated for a Grammy for the Bound 2 sample, um, which is off, you can fly off my airplane. And so we've got him on episode, um, nine. And it's just, he does like a performance of these songs. Like he does a performance of, um, um, like the, the, the definitely the Scotty Beam sample. He plays a bit of a lone reprise. He plays. Um, like literally like so many of his best tracks whilst, whilst talking about how hip hop sam um, sampling changed his lives. And like, I think that's a unique thing for a podcast to offer. And the fact that he want, wanted to do that is because, yeah, it, me and him are friends outside of this. Like, I definitely like love him as a person. Like, he's a great character, but I, I don't know. Like, I think, I think that's a really unique thing. And that's kind of where I want it to go to more. Like, I'd love it in the future if we could do freestyle somehow in the show or like, just something a bit different. Like it's definitely made us think like in season two, we're going to try and, um, yeah. I don't know, shift it a little bit. Yeah. That's insane. And like, that just like amplifies the thing I'm talking about, like dynamism in the show, just making it so fluid and doing all these different things. Like already you have the structure with the interviews with the journalists, the like album reviews amongst yourselves, yeah. those little factoids you do and the, uh, interviews with the artists as well. Like that's such an interesting structure. It's kind so, of like a radio um, show, like do you know what I mean? Like a podcast yeah, so often, like true, we said, yeah. you, you know, when you just hear people just kind of reading a Wikipedia page, kind of, like. <laughs> and it's kind of just a bit like the same way we don't like those awful Tupac and Biggie bio biopics because they just try and cram in everything. Like <laughs> I don't know, I listen to some of these things and I'm a bit kind of like, I don't know, is this great? So I'd sooner it's a show and it's like a magazine show, like. Because otherwise, I just, I don't know. I don't really listen to many podcasts, though. So maybe that's arrogance on my part. I don't know. But like, I, I think it was just important to do something a little bit different. You got that, you got that British pronunciation of Tupac. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> you remind, you, you've seen that documentary, the Tupac, Tupac and Biggie one, where there's the British yeah, yeah. guy who says Tupac over. I'm on. plagued with it. I'm plagued with it. <laughs> that's my curse. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Tupac. Oh. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but come from someone who listens to so many podcasts, it gets in the way of how much music I listen to. You're definitely doing something unique and different. So yeah, that's amazing. Oh, that, um, that means a lot. And just, I'd say like Omar and Sam as well. Just, oh yeah, for sure. so great to, uh, work with. And Sam, I think, um, it's, you know, great writer that people should kind of check out as well. Yeah. And, um, I think a lot of people see podcasts as kind of an easy ride. Like you just sit there and talk with your mates. But like I know that the the grind of having a podcast is is big. So like especially with your podcast that you're scheduling a lot and I know you edit it yourself. So what would you say is like being the biggest challenge so far 
with exit those exchanges. Oh my god, just I, I've just been working and editing it. So if anything, I'm working more this year than I worked the last two years. Like, and so I'm working like every single day of the week. It's not uncommon to do like four or five features in one week, um, and that's not just music features. That could be like commercial copywriting and like I'm. Um, I can comfortably fit that into a five day week, but then when you then do the podcast editing on a Sunday, I mean, it was like before that was your recharge day. Like it just makes everything a lot more kind of tiring. Um, so it's been a lot like in terms of editing. I'm not going to lie, but I almost kind of like it because we have ownership of it and it's like, it's our platform. So it kind of feels worth it. And it's like, we just got the guardian podcast of the week, which was like wild. Because I saw that. That is kind of like a dream. Like, I couldn't believe it. And it's just so good because it's like me and my best friends that have done it. Um, and I don't think the accent, like, like I looked at our viewer statistics and it's like a completely even split between America and Britain. And I think that's great. I think that's because people recognize that, you know, beyond the kind of fucking Harry Potter jokes or whatever, they can hear that we're real genuine guys. Like, I don't give a fuck what where you're from or what accent you've got i'll go into a room with you and i'll just be completely me and i think mm. i think people kind of respect that and i think they see when we interview artists they're not like talking to us like they're being interviewed by nick broomfield in this really gawkish odd way like it's like no like your british accents mean nothing because at the end of the day like you know what you're talking about kind of thing and oh, yeah, yeah. I, th- I just think that's what we're trying to do with this we're trying to just like um we're trying to just show that passion and get it across. And I'm so humbled that people are starting to like listen to it. And I think, um, I think, yeah, the artist, if, if we can make even like two people fans of the artist, then do you know what I mean? That's like our job's done for it for sure. Well, yeah, man. Congrats on all of your success so far. We should definitely move. We've done dug really deep now into the podcast. We should definitely move into your written work but still stick with the theme of um things you've accomplished new in 2020 and um one of the most exciting things i think you're doing right now is the new series you just introduced with okay player which is behind the beat um it was definitely one of those uh ideas that when i saw you put out the first one i was like damn i wish i thought of that (laughs) um (laughs) so can you just uh in in general terms and then we'll get more specific just tell us about how you came up with the idea and then um what your plans are for it for you know moving forward yeah i just i just think that um so often we focus the history around the lead artist and not the producer even though the producer often is the main architect of that story. Like without that beat, without that sound, without that person behind the boards, it's not going to hit in the same way whatsoever. It's like, I don't know. It's kind of, for me, it's kind of like, you know, when you discuss certain films, but you don't even think about their directors, maybe the star vehicles of like the old, olden era where it's just like, I don't know, James Cagney movie. Who the fuck directed it? Like no one knows. Like John Wayne, like no one knows. Like it's kind of the, kind of the same thing, but no, I think, um, yeah, sorry. Remind me of the question again. <laughs> oh, good, man. Um, just, yeah, just really why, uh, you sort of started to answer it, which is really yeah. why, why you came up with the show, but definitely, you know, dive in some more like the, the, stru- Oh, sorry. The, the behind the beat, behind yeah. the beat. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I just kind of, I just kind of felt like these producers, um, you can edit that bit out and I could just go straight <laughs> to those producers. This is me smoking earlier. Um, no, I think, I think those producers honestly don't always get the credit they deserve. Like, 
Ski Beats with Lucini is a great example. Like, that's one of the best beats ever. And it's like, yeah. I just think his name needs to be synonymous with it. And it's like, we've got some like big names like coming up for it. Like I've got Buck Wild, who um, is just a genius. Like he's worked with Pan, um, Biggie, OC. And I'm speaking to him about producing Big L's Pull It On. And um, his stories are just like so incredible. And I think people learn more about the artist from the producer. The producer has a clearer eye on that artist's traits than just about anyone because they know them on a personal level and a creative level. Do you know what I mean? Like really purely. So it's like, that's kind of what I want to do with it. I'm also trying to get, and um, I'm just going to say this on here because I want it to help it get secure the interview because it's a bit um, primo. Like I was, I was like trying to get, and I'm also trying to get Pete Rock. um, So we want to get big producers, but then I also then want to just get up and coming producers. Like I want to talk to 808 Mellow about producing pop smoke. Like, I want to get like a wide range of it. Do you know what I mean? I just want to get that producer about how they created that magic. And I think there's definitely people interested in that. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm more interested in how, um, how Jay Dilla, um, produced the song opposed to like how common approach rapping over the song. Totally. I've always been, yeah, like that. Yeah. So what definitely talk about the, the, the thing that I thought was really cool was the specificity of it, how it's really surrounding uh, one producer's um, I, I, most iconic or kind of like most, uh, I don't know, you describe it, song, um, rather than kind of going in their whole catalog and like they created this. So what what was behind the idea to, to making it so... Because um, I, think, I, think, I think like, a defi- like a, an artist's definitive song can tell you everything about that artist. So it's like, if, if, you, if you think of a song... Um, let's think of kind of Thriller, but like the song Thriller by Michael Jackson. Yeah. It's got the weird bombast, the slight creepiness to it, but also that just euphoric groove, like everything that's good about Michael Jackson and everything that's bad about Michael Jackson is in that song, I think. And I think a producer, one beat can kind of define for me their entire sound. So it's like with Buckwild and Pull It On by Big L, it's... It's got that jazz, it's a flip of a really niche jazz sample. So it's got that avant-garde jazz part of it, which is really sick. And then it's got the boom-back drum, the gutter side, and that juxtaposition says everything you need to know about Buckwild. Uh, Buckwild, to me, is like hearing the bitches brew sessions in a block party. Like mm. in the middle of a block pie, weed everywhere. Like, <laughs> like I don't know. There's like boxes of like pizza loaded up. It's a, it's just, it's not a very nice space to look at, but everyone's having a great time. Like, but but Miles Davis is playing in there. Like Buckwild's this grandiose elegance because he's a jazz head mixed with the street side and and his experiences in Brooklyn. So it's like if you can show that put on purely defines that, then you've captured the whole producer. And it's like each of the ones I want to speak to that range. So it's like Dame Grease, people think of him just as these hood classics, but he actually just flips like weird disco samples. Um, mm-hmm. So it's like <laughs> with each of the, and, and Get At Me Dog crystallizes that. So I want these songs to be like the ones not necessarily people instinctly, sorry, inst- instantly even think of, um, but the songs that most symbolize, do you know what I mean? That power play that sits at the core of their work. 
Yeah, definitely. I love I love that Dame Grease one, especially because of the uh, the disco samples. I think that was a really good insider look. I, you've also written about DMX before. Is there something about the? I mean, obviously, you just explained the really the specific reason you talked about Dame Grease, but can you kind of talk about your specific interest in DMX and his music that surrounds him? Because there's something that's also intriguing about using disco samples specifically with DMX's music based on his sound. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just love the story that he tells about. Um about kind of like DMX um, just unwinding in the studio, like in 96, 97, just listening to like, um, I don't know, Diana Ross and just, <laughs> just like <laughs> chilling, which, um, which I think speaks to um, one side of X, but with DMX, there's just so many sides to him. And he just has that rawness, which I think that there's not many artists in hip hop history that have that voice where every part of their pain is in that voice somehow. Like, I don't know, like, you just feel every word. Like, he could, DMX could, like, talk about, um, the, the most terrible chicken spot in your town. Um, but he could rap about it in a way that would make you eat there every night because he's just got, he just makes you believe it. Do you know what I mean? He just makes you believe it. Um, and I think, yeah, he's just one of those artists I love. I think his story's very tragic as well, obviously. But for me, it's like he's got that Tupac energy when Tupac died. It's almost like something transferred into DMX's body or something. And mm. I think that he continues what I love about, um, about, about P- Tupac, who's probably like my all time favorite artist. And yeah. so, yeah, I would say DMX. I just, I just think like, like, like getting him in the Guardian, um, best ever festival series, um, set series was a big thing because when do you ever see DMX talked about with that cultural capital? Like, you know, a portrait of American realism. And it's mm. like, for me, like, I want to, I want to address that in a way because it's like, I'm, yes, I'm a white writer and, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm very aware that like I'm kind of a, a guest and it's such a privilege to be able to kind of cover this kind of culture. But I think, um, you know, I think if you approach it with that kind of love, um, that you're genuinely, um, you're genuinely treating this art like kind of Lester Bangs treated rock as this high art form in the sixties and seventies when critics almost treated it, um, like a silly little thing, like, you know, making girls scream or whatever. And he suddenly talked about how it makes you escape to another world in your head when you listen to like Coltrane. Um, hip hop for years has been written about like it's wrestling. Like there's just no escaping it. Like artists pain is almost kind of like, it trivialized like it, it I, I don't know it's just almost kind of seen like like wrestling to me like like you like the goodie the baddie they're the big cat like it, just almost like not spoken about as the true art form that it kind of is like hip-hop is it, there's it, nothing else is even close and hasn't been for 20 years and it's like any any critic that denies that is just denying facts and it's like that's what you want to just, that's what you want to cover. And it's like, if you can get those characters um, and, and cover it in the right way, then I think, yeah, that's what drives me, I guess, to do those things. Yeah. Yeah. That's dope, man. So here's a question really, you know, about the series, but more transitioning into, uh, you know, the, your career as a journalist. So I feel like this series why I also love the idea. It's also kind of like, especially the freelance journalist dream to get a kind of series of pieces that you can continually do and have this consistent thing that you're writing for a specific publication. So yeah. in the, the process of kind of building a relationship with an editor, 
Um, you can talk about it specifically with 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 this series or just in general. Um, when do you feel is kind of the right time to to pitch really a series worth of work? At what point in the relationship that you've built with the editor do you feel like? Um, I think you have to prove to the editor you can um, write well, I guess. Um, and yeah, I've been fortunate to have a few series based pieces now. I had like a series of a timeout um, called London on Screen, where like had this idea that. Um, there's so many movies that have been shot in London, but like how many times you hear about the, the location. So, you know, like the corner shop where he gets the Cornetto ice cream from Shaun of the Dead. Like I was like, I'd love to find out the story about how that movie changed that part of London. And through those locations, you learn about the history of London. And when I pitched that, um, I hadn't really written for time out hardly at all. I, I managed to land it. So it's like, I say that because young journalists, like, I just think all it is, is if you've got a great idea and a passion and the will to make someone believe you can kind of deliver it, like, I think you should just go ahead and pitch it. Like, what's the worst thing that someone could do? <laughs> say no, but then you get experience pitching. Like, and it's like, I, I've just, I like series based pieces because you can go deep on one theme. And it's like, I've been so fortunate to do them. Um, uh, but I would just say it's like, ideally you want to have proved to the editor you're capable of doing it of course but i think also if an editor sees like a knockout idea and they and you convince them you're the right person to do it then mm. why shouldn't they give you a commission like i honestly think like someone who's 19 if they pitch the right series why shouldn't they get that series like if anything their perception of let's just say their perception of soundcloud rap is a lot more important than someone who's 35s to do a series like i just think people should just pitch basically <laughs> right right so that's yeah. a yeah i we definitely want to talk to you about pitching because i mean this is the first time me and you have talked but you've become known in our kind of crew of central sauce <laughs> as a bit of a pitch sensei giving out a lot of gems about how to do that so um in sort of list form i guess can you list three main things to think about when crafting a pitch that you would think are kind of kind of crucial um, to get um, an editor's attention. Like, I wouldn't say I'm like any expert by any means, but like what I would do personally would be, um, <laughs> um, I would say the subject line has to draw people in. Think of it. Editors get sent bullshit emails every single day, like loads of bad emails from publicists. Like, I don't know. Pete, uh, I don't know, conspiracy theorists, like all sorts of just crazy like emails. So if your subject line can stand out, and it can provide so you want it to be the headline of your piece so think of it like if you're writing about dmx if you just write a, a feature on dmx pitch in that subject line yeah would i would i open that as an editor probably not but if it says like um i don't know the, the 25 year anniversary of it's dark and hell is hot which um uh viscerally forced the doors open for punk rap or something like that like I, as an editor, I'd be like, oh shit, that sounds interesting. Like, so it's kind of like get that subject line. Number one, I'd say like really kind of well done. Number two, don't write it too much kind of like, um, like a kind of boring letter to an employer or this is to inform you of, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like, you want it to not read like a letter you get from your doctor. Like just, just remember they're human beings, speak to someone like a human being and, they're going to like relate to you more and like, you're going to look like less of a dickhead. <laughs> and um, the third one, I would say just aim to have within your pitch, at least two to three moments, which um, 
I'm fucking myself up here because now I have to try and keep to this level and I might not, but, um, but like trying to have like free moments where like you, um, kind of describe that piece of art or describe the subject that you're writing about in a way that no one's ever written about it before. So when you read and do that research, uh, let's just say, oh, free Greedo, like in that pitch, there should be free moments of your perception of him. So it could be that you describe his music as being like, um, I don't know, like, like similar to Velvet Underground's heroin or what that's, which I think I wrote about, um, the line, in, um, sorry, substance being that kind of song. And it's like, I had that in the pitch and that was like a moment I think that showed I was like thinking about this artist in a kind of different way. So I think, um, make sure that you just show that you're thinking about, um, the artist in a different way to everybody else who's pitching about them because best believe like, the music editor at Complex, like he's got so many little Uzi Vert takes, which are the same every single pitch. Like he wants that one pitch, which the person describes little Uzi Vert in a completely different way. Oh, totally. Or he or she. Right. So, um, besides pitching, what do you think is the most difficult thing for new journalists to navigate? Or what was it for you? Um, I don't know. Like I didn't really get much support. Like I emailed a lot of editors and kind of asked for guidance and not a lot of them got back to me. So I kind of felt a bit, I'm not saying that in a way where it's like all editors are bad, but I get people are very busy, but that was kind of difficult because I just expect, I think people are a lot nicer now. People help each other a lot more now, I think, which is really nice. Like I see a lot of journalists like offering their time and stuff, um, which is good because I think people are realizing with this shit time for the world, like you need mentors more than ever. Like it's so kind of important. So I think, um, I think with new journalists, um, like if you can find that mentor that, that will always help with a lot of the kind of early issues you might face, like just write out to people if you're sincere, you know, and you're patient because they're just as busy and, you know, struggling as you are. Um, they'll probably get back to you eventually. So like, I think it's about having that good attitude. Like, don't pitch an editor with like, um, with this kind of, like, I've already written this piece. It's attached. Like, that's one mistake a lot of new writers make. There's nothing more arrogant than like saying, like, oh, I could write, I've written it already. It's ready to be published. <laughs> <laughs> like, show there's a process. Show that you like respect that process. And I think, um, but for new writers, like, it's challenging when you go on social media and you see, um, all these kind of journalists and it, it feels a bit like the mean gals dinner, dinner table sequence. And it's like the cool people on that table, the slight, uh, it all feels very like, like quite intimidating. I remember I'd be looking, I'd be like, how do I get these journalists to like, like my work and all this kind of stuff that can get intimidating. But the best way to think of it is, and this is what I learned, just like be the best version of you. Like, like, I don't know. Comparison is the thief of joy. Like just kind of focus on what makes you unique because if you focus too much on how um, other people are kind of perceiving you or trying to be friends with the right person then I think it takes away from the energy you, sh you could be using to write so it's like switch off from it for me it's like social media I, I, Twitter is so bad for my mental health it's bad for any human being's mental health but if you look at it proactively as a place to amplify your work um, and show that you love the things you write about then that should be it. Right. Do you know what I mean? So I think young journalists need to like not think more about the body of work. Like there's no question though that like money is a big issue, like mm. which, which I really feel for people because it's a fucking difficult time, but you can make money 100%. Like you just got to be smart. Like you just got to be smart. So it's like, 
there's co- so many copywriting gigs. There's so many labels with bios that need writing for us. There's so many press releases that, um, that need to be written. There's so many like, um, gigs for like really great, like B2B magazines, business magazines, which like pay a lot more than say a review at crack magazine or pitchfork or whatever would. So it's like, I think that's why I try and like mentor people to kind of show them that like, if you balance those things with, earning you can earn good money like like you can you can definitely hustle i think it's just about not letting all the headlines get to your head and just to be smart and like if you like plot and strategize and kind of follow that plan (laughs) it sounds conniving like i'm a army general (laughs) i don't mean it to sound like that i think i've just listened to too much tupac and i think there's a song where it's like playing plot strategy rather than my enemies or something like that (laughs) but um, but like i would i would say that you can definitely make money but it's it's scary when you first come in even more so now but don't let that detract from the fact that you can't get money and a lot of people saying you can't just 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 trying to like i don't know they're they're out of touch i would say I'm glad yeah. you're talking about your uh, your mentorship already. I on one of our regular scheduled programmings of of the podcast, I brought Daniel DeHorty's uh, Twenty One Savage review, and we talked about it, which is one of the better reviews still yeah. that I think I've read this year. So I I just you know just because I I really think his work is um, really excellent, yeah, especially I think he's like seventeen, right? So what? How did that? Yeah. Um, how did that relationship kind of uh, start, and and then what has what has been your kind of mentor? He just reached out to me and just uh, he just reached out to me and just um, I could see in his perspective that he had he looked looked at rap in a, in, a, in a way that was different and um, yeah I just I just ended up speaking to him on the on the phone and just like giving him some advice and it's like I have no issue I'm working like honestly the last two weeks I've been working probably six and a half days of the week and the other half is just for me to like put my feet up and smoke some weed and just chill out but um the rest of the week like I'm just literally working and I'm still fitting in time to like um to, to do this and 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 for me it's like that's more enjoyable than the articles I'm doing because all the reasons we said before like <laughs> I just think I just think that those mentors I didn't have, I want to be for other people because at the end of the day, the worst thing you can be is a hindrance to the next people coming through. Mm. It's the worst thing you can be in hip hop. We mentioned earlier, it's a, it's a bad look when you see Lord Jamar describe Lil Uzi Vert as mindless mumble rap. Like that to me sounds like what people said when the Beatles came out and people were like, it, you know, it's gibberish. I am the walrus is gibberish. Like, yeah. and it's kind of like, that's, that's, that's just really important. Like, I, I just think, I hope more people become mentors. It doesn't matter. Like, even if you've written three times ever, let's just say you've only got three bylines, you've learned something from that experience. It could help someone with no bylines. And it's like, if people just look after themselves, looked after each other's better, like, better. I think it would just the industry would be in a in a much kind of better place, and I think in the US that seems to be quite common ground. In the UK, it's becoming more common ground. So hopefully, like that will just keep keep elevating up. Yeah. So music journalism is a really sort of an artistic career path, and I think a lot of people on artistic career paths struggle to find this balance between the time they're spending, the money they're earning, and the product that they're putting out. And I've seen on Twitter before that you've said that writing for free shouldn't be completely out of the question as long as you're learning something. And you specifically mentioned 
uh, writing for passion-wise. So what is the value of learning that you get from writing for free, and how do you know when to draw the line between, you know, the time investment compared to the financial incentive? That's an excellent question. Um, I would say... Um, it's a good question, man. I think it's, 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 it's a difficult one to answer. I mean, what, what is the essence of kind of what you're looking to figure out with that question? Uh, okay. I guess let's just start with, uh, passion wise. So like sort of the first part of my first part of my, uh, okay. So passion wise, so passion wise, I would say, um, the only reason I said that is because there's been quite a lot of negative backlash. I also, where people are like, people say you can uh, write for free. What the fuck are you going on about? So it's quite a divisive issue. So naturally, I'm just a bit concerned of like, um, not thinking about both sides. But I think writing for Jeff Wise would be invaluable for a new writer because through that process, you're going to learn so much about, um, color, metaphor, exposition, like pacing, storytelling. He's just going to like the notes that he's going to give you going to get you up to a level that when you then go in for a, for a piece for, let's just say pitchfork, even you're ready for it. Like there's no, a lot of those writers who write for passion wise, it's no coincidence that they end up um, like Alphonse ends up at, at pitchfork, like for example, because that process will teach you so much. So it's like, it's a completely ind- independent platform has an incredible voice. I think you're just going to learn a lot from it. And it's like, that doesn't pay the bills. So of course it doesn't, but so often you have to work a job, an unfulfilling nine to five you don't like while trying to make the other dream happen. And it's like, I worked four years at places I didn't enjoy working. And then I came home at six o'clock and worked till midnight and did that for three years. Basically, so I could say I was freelancing while I was working a full time job. And I think um that's something you probably will have to do. But if you just keep showing you can write, like eventually and you do the copywriting stuff that I said before, like eventually you'll be able to quit and do it kind of full time. Um, so I think, yeah, that's the value. That's the value. Like that can set you on the path of being a paid culture journalist, like writing for someone like that, opposed to like writing for, let's just say an exploitative site where the editor doesn't look at your copy. Um, you know, it's just some, it's a big conglomerate and they just don't want to pay their writers. So they just like, get people on some bullshit, which happens a lot on the UK side, 100%. Um, but I don't know, you write for Passion Wise, you write for like Clash Magazine, you're going to work with good editors and even though you're not getting money from it, you're going to learn from it. And I think that's important. There's a big like, you know, we've talked about how how hard you work and how much time that you put in, you know, working on all these features and all this podcast and everything. So you spend a lot of time working but do you still manage to find time where you sort of enjoy the craft just for the enjoyment of the craft and how do you sort of how do you balance those things it doesn't feel like working i don't know that's that's (laughs) it it just doesn't it just feels like i don't know this is just what i dreamt about like do you know what i mean like i i all those days listening to like supreme clientele cd on my walkman until it broke or like um, I don't know, listening to I'm Ready by the Diplomats 400 times at my nan's house while I had a big A3 sheet of paper and wrote down every single lyric before, do you know what I mean? Lyrics were on the internet mm-hmm. just so I had the lyrics and I could look back and then listen to how they 
went on the beat because I just love the way Jules Santana could just say the same word eight times and it still sounded good. Um, like, I don't know, those kind of, those kind of things, um, I don't know, I guess kind of mean that like now when I get to like interview someone like Ofri Greedo, who's like, I think like the trap Brian Wilson, um, <laughs> like that's just, that's not a job to me. That's like, that's like my dream. Like when I was a kid uh, and I dreamt of being a music journalist, I, my first ever article I wrote was a school paper on Tupac and it was like, Tupac is alive. It was a news story and I faked the news story. And I, I remember I said to my friend, like, that would have been my dream to have interviewed Tupac. And I, I don't even know where it came from, but I just remember saying something along those lines. For me, like interviewing Greedo is like interviewing Tupac when he was in prison in ni- 1995. It's like, how's that work? <laughs> like, that is just, for me, that's like something that I'll, cherish forever and it's like maybe that's that's bad because as a result maybe i take on too much and that is definitely a balance that i can't i don't want to give the impression like i've got so much work but but it's like i can take on too too many things at once and maybe not have the right balance so yeah that's definitely something to think of but i don't know about you like when you interview open mike eagle that doesn't feel like work to you does it <laughs> no not really yeah like i know how much of a fan you are like so when you interview that guy like for you that must just be like that's just like my dream (laughs) yeah yeah so i think you just got to kind of look at it like like that a bit like i don't know maybe um it does get to a point where it feels like work and that maybe is the point when you start to think maybe you should do something else and it's like i probably do have that in my head like one day i would like to do something else because the second it feels like that that's when you should probably like jump off like i've got friends who are like who were sports journalists and they were like, they would interview footballers and they'd just be thinking in their heads, you dumb cunt. Like, why am I interviewing? <laughs> why am I interviewing you? You say the same shit every week. It was a good game today. The lads did really well. Uh, yeah, obviously keep the spirits up for Wednesday. And that's the interview. And it's like, you know, they were at a point where it was like their love of football could not sustain the red, like, <laughs> so, and, and one of my friends, like, like, like basically quit being a sports and I respect that so much and because I think when it feels like that that's when you should like definitely stop it Mm. yeah Yeah. and like it stops being pure at a point of that by that stage isn't it because like one of the things that made me not want to write about football at the start was like all I saw was just match reports and people saying what happened on the pitch is like I could watch the highlights and get the same thing like why why does this exist yeah but then um I found a niche place where people are actually talking about the sport in a way that elevates it, the way that... Your Arsene Wenger piece is awesome, by the way. So good. Thank you. Oh, man, thank (laughs) you. Glad you caught that one. I I love that piece. Yeah, it's pretty much that kind of stuff I want to do. Like, talk about it as the art that sport actually is. Like, it can be elevated to that if you talk about it in the right way. Yeah, make it poetic. And that's your drive, isn't it? You can see it. Like, you want to talk about Arsene Wenger more like a magician rather than a tactician. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Beautifully put better than I could. Yeah, yeah that's something that your interviews do for me as well, just like peeling layers behind, back behind the art that are even brighter than just listening to the music itself. And that makes your interviews really immersive, like your Marvy piece and your Greedo piece. Thanks, man. So, like, when interviewing, how do you get artists comfortable enough to open up to that point? Is it like a natural thing or does it depend on the artist or is it something that you that you do um i think i don't know like i i spoke a bit at the start about um sort of getting into hip-hop and stuff and it was like for me it was like i mentioned my dad passing away like i listened to rap music and a lot of the template was like people who were raised 
by kind of single mothers, like, and even though I couldn't relate directly to that experience, of course I couldn't, like, you know, we, if, if I consider myself working class, but like on the upper fringes of working class, like my dad dying pushed us from sort of lower middle class to working class. But it was like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I just think, um, I think because I have that background and I understand I've gone into a media industry with people where it's so obvious they don't know what it's like to like not be able to just ask for money and get it in an instant. Like, like, <laughs> like I think um, I think that's kind of uh, it's important because when you speak to a, a lot of hip hop artists in particular, like they know they understand struggle on a level that you'll never understand. But even if you have a one percent understanding of of being poor, and and that's how, that's literally the ratio I would compare to to, to an artist like um, Greedo. Like like <laughs> it's not even in the same universe. But even that slight understanding or grief. It means that like that you can have a, an adult conversation with them, and I think it's about showing them that you're a fan. It's like the worst thing I can imagine is interviewing an artist and and not 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 showing them that I've listened like I've listened to a song they made eight years ago, and there's a message, there's a line in there which has a thread line with who they are today. Because for me, it's like then you're not showing a respect for them as an artist, and it's like if you just go in with those principles of that respect and just being like speaking to people on a human level. And just not being like, I don't know, like I, some people are intimidating to interview. I did a Zoom interview with Ty Dollar Sign, and mm. Ty Dollar Sign is like an intimidatingly good looking man. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, he just is. Like, there's no question about it. Like, he has a glow about him, and it's like, <laughs> it's, it, it, I don't know why but for some reason I felt I felt like I was on dial up and he was on 4k even his camera quality was different it was just like it's crazy so it was like but that interview went so well he was doing bong hits with me like we, we we'd spoke for like well over an hour he just went really deep and it was just like I think it was just because I was relaxed with with him and I was able to just like <laughs> not be like sat like this like oh um featuring Ty Dolla Sign um <laughs> like I just think you just gotta sit back a little bit <laughs> relax like put your feet up do whatever it takes to help help you relax and just treat it like a conversation with a really interesting person at the pub who you've just got into conversation with and mm -hmm. you, do you know what I mean like have it like that because at the end of the day it's a human being like it's not it's not like what we said before about rap and wrestling it's like <laughs> it's not like a, a big theatrical character. This is a human being. And it's like, if you approach it with that understanding, people are going to be a lot more at ease with you than if you're like speaking to them where it's like, um, I don't know. I don't know. Like the young thug's a superhero, which he is. But when you're interviewing him, don't speak to him like he's Superman. Like speak to him like he's the kid with the background that he has and, and speak to him more like a human being. Yeah, something you said that really struck a chord with me is like something I try to do in my interviews is you hear all the time about how artists are like, I'm so sick of doing these interviews with this journalist who just asks the same questions over and over again. And that's something I try to be very conscious of is like, you know, going back to old interviews, finding the new questions, demonstrating a knowledge of the work. Um, and, you, you know, you said the same thing where you want to get the feeling across to the artist that you are not just like, oh, I listened to this album and I wrote some questions down, but that you have been, you know, invested in the work and interested in it and have thought about it critically 
Uh, so how mm. do you sort of demonstrate that in an interview? You know, because it's hard to balance. You don't just want to sit there and give a bunch of exposition, but no. you also need them to understand that they have that kind of, that you have that kind of connection. I think it's about just showing that like communicating clearly how the music made you feel. And it's like, if there's a truth in that emotion of how it made you feel, then that's a truth that they'll understand on some level. So it's like, uh, like for example, we spoke about Buckwild earlier and in the interview, like I literally said to him, it was like the Miles Davis uh, Bitches Brew session in a block pie. And it was like, he'd never heard um, his music described like that before. And it was like, from then onwards, it was like, he trusted me to speak to him. So it's like, if, if in the first part of the interview, you can show to whoever you're speaking to that like, you instinctively get them on a level that's true to you, then that's just going to make them realize that like, you're not bullshitting. It's not just like album cycle. And you've like looked up the album an hour before or whatever, because they speak to people like that all day long or, or the opposite end. They speak to someone who's like, they think that they're like as big as the people they interview. They don't realize that it's their job to document the culture. It's not their job to be a personality. Like, like for me, like even being on camera like, is uncomfortable for me. Like I never want to be some TV side dickhead. Like I just don't. Like, no offense to people who do it. Like <laughs> no offense to absolutely, the dickheads. Absolutely get it. But like I know that I would be a dickhead if I did it. That's what I mean. Like it just wouldn't work for me. And it's like I, I just, <laughs> I just, I just think if you go into an interview with um, Ofri Greedo, for example, and you speak to him. Um, like you think you're a big deal. It's like nothing you've done in your life, even if you're like the deputy editor of a big national newspaper compares to like being homeless and like, and like literally turning nothing into, into like, into like millions and these incredible songs that shift an entire culture forward. I don't care if like all the cool people follow you on Twitter. There's nothing that, that will overshadow that so if you go in with this kind of pompous attitude where it's a bit like i don't know just 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 so relaxed that it's like you you've almost kind of feel like they should be happy to speak to you that it's going to be a disaster but you need to go in and have that balance of like speaking to them on a human level but also showing you really care about this music because you've sat and listened to it for seven hours before like you know before i interviewed jpeg mafia i listened to his whole catalog probably five times through and that not just the stuff on on the um the the spotify's like the, the yeah. stuff that he did before like like before he was even called jpeg mafia and it's like that that's what you should do like especially like like you guys like 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 i think in that stage of your career where you're on the getting on the ladder it's like when you interview these open mic eagles, show them that it's like, treat it like it should last ever interview. Fuck it. Like, just, just do it. Just why not? And it's like, I try and bring that energy now, even because it's like, as I said before, like, I know what, it, what it's like to be the kid listening to like these artists and everyone telling you, you'll never get a chance to interview them. So it's like, why wouldn't I approach these interviews like the FA Cup final? Do you know what I mean? Like, they are, yeah. they're big moments. And I think sometimes you need to have come from, not having loads like to truly appreciate that sometimes when it's like you know your whole life is just like you just fall back into something that will generate a lot of money or like it's just like when you just know if you fall back it's over for you like do you know what I mean you just have to just keep going and just like treat these interviews so like I would just say yeah I'm sure you did that with your open mic eagle interview like I've seen your, like, your tweets and you're a deep dude like you've got great perspective so I think 
um, yeah, I think you're on the right path with that mentality. Like that's the mentality for the interview. Yeah. yeah, I see. I mean, one of the one of the qualities I guess that I identify in some of my favorite journalists is uh, specifically with freelance journalists is, is a feeling of like genuineness and authenticity, right? And I think that that those character traits are very important to like connecting with artists, but also to establishing relationships with uh, publications and editors. And, you know, since you have bylines across so many publications, (laughs) you know, I take it that that has to be something that you're pretty good at. Right. So how do Um, you hope so? Like, I'm sure there's like editors out there that hate me as well. But like, (laughs) um, please don't. (laughs) But um, I don't know. Like, yeah, you just got to. It's what I said to you before. Like when you communicate with an editor, like speak to them like a human being. Don't speak to them like a deity or like even or like even as a kind of somebody you should be afraid of because you know they're just human beings with like deadlines and pressures and it's just i I think that's that's the important thing um like with being genuine it's like if you put someone else on edge i don't know if that's the best the best way like i don't know you just need to just be at ease i guess in in those kind of situations um it's nice of you to say that like I, i don't i don't know about that but it's just I don't know. For me, it's just about just like approaching it as I would just speaking to my friend who I haven't seen for a few years. Like that, like when I interviewed Danny Brown, that's what it feels like. It's just like that friend you only see in a supermarket and like you come back to him in two years when he's got an album out and it's like, treat it like that. Don't treat it like, Oh my God. It's oh, what am I going to ask? Oh no. We'll never just, just, just have faith in your own voice and you'll be, you'll be all right. Like I'm sure all three of you have that. Like by the, questions you're asking and stuff so it's like just ask these level of questions to artists and you'll be fine well <laughs> uh, what is so what is like the most surprising way that you've developed a connection you know like there's very like scientific method ways of developing connections you know send the emails meet your deadlines you know very yeah. textbook things but what's one of the most surprising ways that you've been able to build a connection I sent flowers, a box of chocolate. No, I'm joking. <laughs> no, that would be creepy as fuck. I was about um, to say, was that to, tie, was that to tie a dollar sign or an editor? <laughs> no, you were about to like kick me out of the room. <laughs> no, um, I would just say creative ways. I think it's just about when you first approach people, the most creative way is just a good subject line and a good fucking pitch with pictures within it. Those moments that take like, I don't think an editor wants you to like, I don't know, spell their name out, um, <laughs> over, over, over a Zoom chat and I love you in, in big letters or something like that. I, I don't think there's a big love actually gesture that you should do. Like, I think you should just, just send good ideas and, and keep sending more of them. Like, we all love hip hop. Like, why do we love people like Benny the Butcher or like Ofri Greedo or like Jay Z or whoever? They just keep pumping out great product. They're hustling. Like they're doing something that we really kind of love and the writers who I really admire, like someone like Trey Alston, who just like constantly is putting things out. Like I think that he's realized, um, if you take the templates you love in these artists and apply them a bit to yourself as well. Do you know what I mean? Like if you like Benny the Butcher, be a bit like Benny the Butcher. Like, like obviously I mean to the creative process. So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think they're all things yeah. that you should consider. How um, So you talk about, you know, admiring uh, journalists who are frequently putting out work and you yourself put out work very frequently. 
how often do you pitch to meet that sort of quota, you know, meet that quota of your own work, but also meet that financial quota that helps you able to pay rent. I think the worst thing you can do is rest on a pitch for too long. If you, if you spend four days on a pitch, you send it. And I don't know, let's just say it's about how like, um, you send a pitch about how the first Blink 182 album felt like a big cuddle when you went through your parents' divorce. Like you put all your energy in the world into this pitch and you sent it and it hasn't been accepted and you're heartbroken, right? Rightly. And then you just like sit down and you just don't do any more and you let it knock your confidence. That's not the way to go. Like the way to go is just to think, fuck it, on to the next one. If I'm saying, if I believe my voice and I've got like, um, you know, I've got, I know what my voice is. I know that I've listened to this song. Those, those ways we spoke about, those like three ways where, you know, no one else has ever written like it. One of these pitches is going to land. So just keep going. Like, don't like, I just say like, don't let, let your head, um, go down too much. Yeah. Yeah. You said something earlier about like your listener base for the podcast being like a 50 50 split between US and UK. And, like, I see that as kind of your taste, I guess. Like, can you speak on your relationship <laughs> with UK rap versus US rap? And, like, I guess UK journalism, that space versus the US journalism yeah, space. Yeah, I, I try and listen to everything, seriously, like, on both sides. Like, I'm, at the moment, on the UK side, like, I love Digger D. I think he's just incredible. He's the embodiment of, like, whatever. In the same way Greedo is of the kind of prison industrial complex, he is of a lot of the issues with the British judicial um system and just kind of judicial system um, you can tell i'm a bit high here um it, it um he, he's incredible digger d is amazing i love heady one i think he's a bit weird and eccentric in the same way an e40 is um I'm, I'm obsessed with like unknown t slow tie like little sims i don't know like i just think we're, we're past the time now where we can sit back and say that uk rap is in us rap shadow it's like yeah. And, and when you see like Drake working with an artist like Giggs, and at first I'm sure people were like, Batman, da, 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 and just like, what the fuck is this shit? Like, it's awful. But now I think a lot of people are hearing that and they're like, this guy puts words in a, together in a slick way, just like Rock Marciano does. He's playing with language. He's, he's a very colloquial British, um, like Cockney character, like, and I, I think that Drake has done a lot to kind of merge those gaps. Like that's obviously a debate for a, for another day. <laughs> but like, I don't think you can say UK rap is in US rap shadow anymore. More people are spitting out and out spitting bars in the UK than, than, than the US. There aren't, you know, there aren't many kind of skeptors. There aren't many kind of like slow ties who we mentioned before. I don't really see many artists like that coming out, out of the US, like Dave's. Dave is definitely another one. Um, uh, on the drill side, like the people on the come up, like La Vida Loca, who we spoke about before, like I just think there's so much coming from the UK scene. It really excites me. And I hope that American listeners, like, I mean, you guys are from America, like has your ear changed? Like I imagine it has. I imagine oh. now when you hear, like compared to 10 years ago, it yeah. must be like, yeah bro the fact that i could like by name earlier just say like oh i really love this female drill rapper from the uk ivorian doll is like two years yeah. ago no way <laughs> you know exactly. what I mean? for sure yeah. i mean and I'm, i'll keep it 100 percent. and me and ryan have kind of talked about this in in uh kind of before we were going to talk to you because he said you kind of have 
little bit of opinions about this. Um, but I, when I was first listening to UK rap, like early kind of gig stuff and even transitioning into the Skepta thing, like my ear had to adjust at first. I was like, I don't know if I can <laughs> rock with this. And at this point, there's definitely artists like there's even more low key ones. I did an interview um, with the publication for this artist, DC, who's kind of in the grime and does a little bit of drill too. And his stuff is unbelievable. So I think hmm. at this point for sure, um, yeah, my, my, my taste for, for UK rap in general. And I really fuck with Hetty one too, for sure. Um, yeah, and look at Kid Cudi's new album. It's yeah, got, I was gonna it's say Ske- it's got Skepta on, Skepta it, you know? like, on that. Yeah, and it's crazy. like that—that's one of the rap verses of the year. Like any year, you've got like Slow Tie on the Brockhampton album, like the mm. only yeah. truly great verse on that album. <laughs> um, I think um, I definitely think um, to answer answer your question, like I love both sides like equally, but like I get a lot of lot of shit from sam because he's definitely more of a uk rap head than i than me like i'm probably i probably swing slightly to the us in all honesty like and that's just because when i grew up like uk rap wasn't the thing to sort of when i was like between 14 and 18 let's just say there were a few artists like skinny man kalashnikov but the mainstream artists were just all rapping in us accents and it was corny like there was roots maneuver there were pockets of people but Compared to U, U, US rap, it was just like, you know what I mean? Whereas Sam is a few years younger than me. Sam is the co-host on Exit the 36 Chambers. Um, so he's grown up in an era where it's like UK rap's always been great. <laughs> so I think that's probably why, like, I probably slightly, but I think the kids growing up today, like, you shouldn't see divisions between UK and US rap. Like in the episode guy where we describe Lord Apex, we just describe him as one of the, most original rappers out now, not like one of the most original US or UK. I think that's important. Like you love, I know you love the uh, Dave album, Brandon, but it's like, yes, like yes. conceptually, that's, that's as good as anything that's come oh, out of <clears throat> the US recently. Hasn't been there. Like, yeah. And that's really like, it's funny when you say, when you ask like if your ear changed, because my ear definitely changed um, with yeah. summer, was that, that was 2019 or 2018? Yeah. Psychodrama was 2019, right? I think Dave. it was 20, 2018 or 2019. Yeah. It, well, it came out the same summer as Lil Sims' Gray Area, and it was like oh, those yeah. two albums within a concentrated period of time, and like Classic. that was like my summer <laughs> listening, and then it was like, oh, okay, like clearly there is a lot more going on in UK rap than I was like had prior knowledge yeah. to. And like I honestly think I've mentioned Apex because I feel like everyone should listen to his music. He is a genius, like. Like, he'll take you to an intergalactic world when you listen to his raps. Like, this is someone who, like, understands how to translate that euphoric feeling of, like, I don't know, let's just say eating too many edibles or something like that and just being in that blissful state. Like, he can take you there without any drug. And it's like, listen to Apex's music. He 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 is going to be a big artist, I promise you. Like, he is going to merge the gap between... um the US and the UK artists like that will I think like I think we're already seeing it Hedy was on a billboard in like in like New York Times yeah. Square but I think you he's a true artist like I'm not saying that the others aren't but in a sense he's always like doing something different and pushing the envelope out and it's like I'm so excited by the UK scene I think everyone should be and it's like if they can listen to the show and see the fact that there's that balance between everything um hopefully you know, that also speaks to the fact there should be a balance in how we listen to this stuff now. Like, US and UK people, look at Pop Smoke rapping over 808, mellow beats, like drill beats, like UK drill beats. Mm -hmm. Like, 
And, and it not sounded alien to anyone in New York. Now, New York and London are very similar places in ways. Like, I think they feel very similar. But um, that's big, isn't it? That's beautiful. Like, I can't remember when that happened before. And it's like, I think uh, that speaks to, like, a very different future. Like, it, I think if you're a music critic and you're still, ped- you're still not listening, you're a, U- a US music rap writer, and you're still not listening to UK rap ser- at a serious level, then I don't think you're doing your job properly. I actually think you're taking up a seat that someone who is listening to both mm-hmm. sides fairly should have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Apex is really the one that I've gotten into the most, I think, because of your podcast, which speaks to like, you know, one of the things that a really talented journalist does is they are able to build someone's relationship with an artist. Uh, mm. And they're also another thing is they are able to deepen someone's relationship with an artist. And in particular, uh, you've mentioned O3 Greedo several times throughout this uh, podcast episode, and I have held myself back from going <laughs> in on, because I wanted to get through the rest of the stuff, but now yeah, yeah. I really want to really <laughs> talk about O3 Greedo, and specifically because of the piece of yours, I think it was the first one of yours, maybe the second mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. featured on the podcast, um, was, as you've mentioned, I think it was titled um, O3 Greedo is Running West Coast Rap from Prison, and it was a dazed piece, and it's one of my favorite features we've ever read on the podcast because oh, man, that well. Thank you. Greedo is an artist that like I've been following for a long time, but not like in depth, right? Like He just does so much music uh, that it's hard to keep up with every single thing he does, but yeah. I've o- there's always some kind of Greedo song that I've found that's in my rotation. But what your piece on Greedo did was take something from like an artist that I was sort of passively listening to and turned it into an artist that I was like, like, Oh my God, like the depth (laughs) of this, like the quality of this work. And like, that was really brought out because of your piece. So I think it's an excellent example of great journalism. That means honestly means the world. Uh, I think with Gre- with Greedo, it was just like I don't know when you when you really get into it and it just clicks with you, it, it just it just takes hold of you and just won't, won't let go of you. It becomes like it, it's almost like something of him is in every one of those songs. It's just it's almost like a living organism. I know it sounds like wanky, but it just is like for my dogs. Like who records a song just after finding out? that someone they love has died and just does it in one take. And it's like the same way that DMX and Tupac could channel their pure feeling, but he does it in such a, like his, he uses his voice like Hendrix uses his guitar. It's an instrument that's designed to like, to take you onto different levels. You listen to the tonal shifts in those tracks. Like he's doing things and this is all in one take. It's instinctive to him. If he writes lyrics down, then he's not, he's not truly tapping into the energy of every single person that's ever died and was. Like, for him, every single one of those spirits hits him and he has a spiritual purpose and there's a lot of the stuff I hadn't, like, like, put in the piece, but like, he really has that spiritual purpose and like, and, and you can hear that when, when he speaks, like, and that's for not just the people that fall in Watts, it's everyone that's ever like, had a, had a house party in Watts, like, you know, seen their first kid walk, like, had something great happen to them, sit on the street and be walked past. He channels every aspect. You can go to Greedo for those like, talk like a walk and lick tracks and just like have your head knocking. Or you can cry to Greedo. You can play Greedo while you're 
girlfriend gets um, dressed like to go out, <laughs> you can like play him at a kind of a, a family barbecue. Like he's got every single side to him, hasn't he? Like he's just so. And like when I just realised that, I was and, and then dig dig deeper into his story. And, like you know, Jeff Wise is a great. Um, you know, the, the reason I even got into Wayfree Greedo and the articles he's written on him and Draco the Ruler as well have been like next level good, like the kind of pieces people will always kind of remember. But I knew that Greedo had been written about before, but I wanted to approach it in a way where it was like, I didn't read any of those pieces in preparation. I just wanted to write my piece. I wanted to be true to my experience of Greedo and the fact that he is this kind of perfect representation of the black experience in America and how people are passed through a system and no one wants to get to know them or hear their voice. And like just him existing where he is, it, it is, is like the embodiment of the American dream. And it's like, when I looked at it like that, that's how I wanted to write it. Like I wanted it to, to be like a film. Like I might sound like pretentious as fuck, but I don't really care to be honest, because I don't know a lot of the rappers I love, like Danny Brown say to me, like atrocity exhibition, different songs are supposed to be like different films. So it's like, you want it to be cinematic. You want it to have those knockout moments, those moments where you sit and reflect. And it's like, he deserves those. Like you can attest, like if you get someone like him with his life story, um, then you better show up. (laughs) And that also highlights one of the most difficult aspects of this piece, which is just the fact that you're profiling an artist who is in prison. Uh, When Mm. you were in sort of the story formation of this piece, did you feel like that was going to be an issue? And then how did you sort of confront that, that problem? Um, yeah, I did. But when you work with great editors, I didn't mention, um, dear mass earlier, okay player. who's an unbelievable editor. Um, and also, uh, um, with this piece, Sal, who's just like, great. He's not a days now, but I think they're um, a lesser place without him there. Like um, they, they're a great place still, but like any place is um, lesser without him because he was such a good editor. But when you've got good editors, they help you structurally, but like with me structurally, I thought it was important to have these scatter shots of his story and then into the present day. Cause I kind of all, all, almost wanted the piece to kind of, um, to kind of have that kind of, um, that kind of pacing. Because when you listen to his music, it definitely has a kind of psychedelic feel that makes you shift in between different perceptions. One second you're here, one second you're there. And it's like, if you can like do that a little bit of your writing, that might, um, like I just felt like the writing had to be a bit kind of wavy, if you like, like because Ofri Greedo is wavy as fuck. So it's like you have to write a little bit, like kind of how the music makes you feel. So I think structurally that was kind of the plan with it. But um, that those interviews were weird to do. I was basically speaking to him on loudspeaker, being played on loudspeaker, being played on loudspeaker through another phone. So it was like you know that, and that, and we we only had like ten minutes initially, and he ended up being like. Like, uh, like I fuck with you, like, and then it just called me back, like, and then we spoke for like another ten minutes, another ten, and just kept speaking and speaking. Like, I think we ended up speaking about 30, 40, 50 minutes, and it was only supposed to be ten, and it was like I don't know, that it's like I got more structurally than I would have, so I was very lucky for that, like very lucky and fortunate. But structurally, I honestly, like, I don't sit down before an article and be like, this is this paragraph, this is like I, I think. You want to know in your head the main points that you want to discuss, but the second you kind of just, I, for me personally, that doesn't help with my process. Like, and I think with an artist like that in particular, given how wavy his music is, you want it, 
the writing to be a little bit freeform. You want it to be structurally sound and for it to be entertaining, but you, do you know what I mean? You want it to be a little bit weird. Like when you write about Open Mike Eagle, like a lot of his music is so psychedelic. So it's like, I don't know, the way you describe it has to almost be a little bit, doesn't it? I liked how uh, before when you were talking about it, you, you described the, the kind of the cinematic element of your own writing. Um, and I wanted to talk about a piece that I, I really liked, which was your piece about a written testimony. And um, I, we've kind of talked about this before, too, about kind of like picking out specific bars for rappers but i definitely like to pick out specific bars for writers that we talk <laughs> oh, to <shit. laughs> um yeah. so i really like the bar um I'm, this is not a direct quote but the bar where you compare j and j to de niro and pesci dipping <laughs> bread in balsamic and the irishman um i thought that was really dope i wrote a review of my own on a written testimony and yours felt the most close to home to kind of my thoughts on it because you focus so hard on what was so unique and interesting about Jay and Jay's relationship. So I'd just love <laughs> Thanks, to talk man. to you about um, your thoughts on that, expanding it, and then uh, share some of mine maybe a little yeah, bit. Yeah, because they're just kind of those two older statesmen, aren't they, that are just kind of like, they're definitely in a restaurant that you don't have access to, and they're sipping on the best wine and just like, um, you know, like have a very avant-garde mindset, and they're just having these like crazy conversations, like, and I think that's the genesis of the album. For me, it was like, and it was, um, it, it was almost like Jay-Z allowed Jay Electronica to kind of shed the weight of this mythical album that obviously took so long to be released. So I think with that piece, it was just like, uh, it was a big moment because like Jay Electronica like retweeted it, which was like a really cool, um, like amazing moment. But, um, I think it was just about crystallizing the whole story because with Jay Electronica, it's like, Fuck, like the fact he even dropped that out, I still can't believe we've got two J Electronica albums this year. Like you wouldn't have expected mm. that, would you? So you almost have to like try and speak to a bit of the mystery um of J Electronica kind of within within the piece, maybe. Like I think um I don't know, what did you make of, of a written testimony? I mean, it still sounds great now. So I feel like going yeah. out on a limb and saying it was worth it. Yeah. Um was a good thing to have done, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, so the thing that I found the most intriguing about it um, was I felt like it was a really good example of the two-pronged approach that was necessary to attack the system. And I feel like way too many people were focused, which happens a lot, you know, with like... Um, just rap albums in general on like the quality yeah. of the bars rather than on the emphasis of like the actual concept of the album. And I, it made a lot of sense to me that he waited this long. Cause it was like, no, he was waiting for the right moment to talk about something that made sense for him and was super intentional and bringing Jay-Z mm. while it was also like, you know, so Jay electronic thing to do. He, you know, releases an album. That's not just him. It was so much like, this is a specific thing um that we're kind of all trying to figure out about how to go against this system that's not working um and, yeah. and to show those two perspectives and co-align them throughout the album and then end on something like the grief that they both experience um while they're both going about you know it's to, to end on that that note of a bit a bit it's just oh that last track is just uh it, probably the best song that was released this year like i think if anyone's ever lost anybody you get that track instinctively don't you like, i know jay electronica mm. lost his mother but like you know checking on your phone numbers that belong to people you know don't live like i don't know if you've ever done that but like it's something that i've done and like you look, it's crazy like like no one's ever kind of put that like we speak about Jay-Z bringing out the best of Jay Electronica, but like that is also some of Jay-Z's best ever rapping. I oh, honestly yeah. believe that. Serious. Like it just, it sounds like evolved, like 
sensei reasonable doubt like, i don't know like yeah it's crazy it's crazy levels of rap isn't it and i just think it, jay electronica like when you see jay-z's playlist and he's got like all of griselda in there and he's like listening to like crazy <laughs> stuff rock marciano and you you know you wonder if jay electronica he helps him um embrace that side and the written testimony might have been the path that now leads to like an album of jay-z like rapping over rock marciano beats like that would be the, the, the dream <laughs> yeah no i thought that Jay-Z. i thought that too a lot of people said that it, it yeah it changed how jay electronic rap but i thought jay-z's rap changed more than his too i thought it was very it was way uh just a totally separate type of philosophical mindset that he was attacking the bars with than i had ever heard before for sure yeah 100 percent. it's a great it's a great great album and i think um he's just such an interesting artist he's proof that don't have to put out albums every year like you know there's a space in hip-hop for a greedo but there's also a space for an artist that puts out one album every like 10 12 years and it's just like a masterpiece and i think um i like those characters are probably some of the most interesting like they're hardest to interview Mm. it's almost like going to see colonel um kurtz and apocalypse now like going up the river and wondering what you're going to find like (laughs) but like i'd love to do one of those interviews with a kind of reclusive artist who doesn't put many many things out jay electronico is definitely he's got that kubrickian kind of like you never knew what kubrick was like behind closed doors yeah. don't know what jay Electronica's like and i think as hip-hop writers like there's something quite romantic about him like mm. that other artists don't have like i and i'm not saying he's perfect i know he said some you know quite anti-semitic things and you know, so there are aspects of the new album which don't work. I don't think it's like a masterpiece, but I do think it's great. And like, he's the kind of artist that like, um, I don't know. I sound like just a typical hip hop nerd, but he's definitely the kind of artist that you have a romanticism attached to. And that's rare, isn't it? So, yeah, totally. yeah. So we've talked a lot. This is the last question before we transition into our kind of outro standard thing that we've been, uh, or tradition, I cool. guess we've been doing. Um, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about this because we've, we've talked a lot about, um, kind of tactics and ways, the best ways to interview artists and the, the, the ones that we'd like to interview for specific reasons. But I specifically, and have laughed every time, have seen you post a lot on Twitter about uh, being frustrated with reading artists interviewing other artists. So yeah. if you could, <laughs> could go into why that's frustrating for you and why... Well, your, you show, think- your, show, your show is the perfect um, kind of um, personification of, the, of treating music journalism like storytelling right like you Mm. deep dive on articles like um like some guys deep dive on i don't know old beanie seagull albums (laughs) and and like (laughs) i i think that's 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 like um really really kind of important um yeah i just think i think when it comes to that question um It's a hard one. It's a hard one for me to answer. My mind has just suddenly gone blank. Can you just repeat the last part of the yeah, question no again? Yeah, no doubt. So why, just yeah. very simply, why shouldn't artists interview other artists and they should leave it? And why should they leave it to music journalists? Okay, I think I think um, your voice cut out initially, so that's why I didn't hear all of it. But art, artist on artist interviews, I think it's just it's just boring. It's just two millionaires like, <laughs> oh, what did you eat this week? <laughs> I, I had mushrooms from Whole Foods or whatever, like. I, Bella Hadid has not, uh, trust me, like Bella Hadid has not got a more interesting perspective on, um, 
the new Kanye West album for an interview than like Jeff Wise has or mm. Taylor Crompton has. <laughs> like they just don't like. So it's like just give journalists those opportunities. I think um, right. because they deserve that. You know they deserve them. They're the storytellers and they're, and, and they're outsiders as well. Um, if you're a celebrity, you have an understanding of like privilege and wealth that few other people have. So you're disconnected and it's like interviewees are a chance to kind of bring people into the real world sometimes. And that is when you can, that's when you get the most authentic human answers because um, they're not being spoken to from within the bubble. You know, you're piercing through the bubble as the journalist, as the interviewee. And it's uh, that's why I think it's so important. And it's like, I don't want to trivialize it because it's like, but who knows? Maybe one day that's all music journalism will be. It will just be Joe Budden interviewing new artists. And it's like, <laughs> it's the thing though, like these, these, these podcasts and it's great. It's kind of like sport. It's like Ian Wright playing for Arsenal and then becoming a pundit. Like that's what I kind yeah. of liken it to. But when you start to get the definitions fucked up between what a journalist is, a media personality is, um, a rape, like I think those lines need to be quite, quite drawn. So like, I think it's important to have a bit of a fight back against these articles. I don't know about you guys. Can you name one artist on artist interview you've ever really? I can think of probably two. I think of I the um, the Kendrick Lamar, um, Rick Rubin interview. That that was like genuinely was pretty cool. pretty interesting. That's it. Actually, I can't think of two. <laughs> I can think of one that I remember being very intriguing. Though I wonder, it was years ago, so I wonder if it would read the same now. But Steve McQueen interviewed Kanye, and I thought that was pretty captivating. Yeah. I remember that was sick. I was like, they yeah. talked a lot about fashion, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. The uh, Rolling Stone ones, I think, are usually pretty good. But I also have a bias because I love Rolling Stone in general. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. In-house Rolling Stone fan stand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's, got, he's got that Cameron Crowe obsession. I reckon he's seen <laughs> Almost Famous so many times. He's got all the records in a box under his more, bed. I'm more of a fear and, fear and loathing. Fear and uh, okay, fair. <laughs> uh, there's nothing wrong with being that person, by the way. I definitely <laughs> have bought all of the vinyls under the bed and almost famous. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's fine. <laughs> oh, definitely. All right, man. So let's uh, let's transition into this outro. We're always very hyped to hear what people um, are going to say to these questions. Um, just to give you a little intro to so you understand how it's set up. We are not into labeling anything the best and worst, which is an essential part of Central Sauce's intention in journalism. To us, the inherent definition Mm. of sauce, who's got it, and why is subjective depending on your personal standards. And then this is our three-question ending sequence that we call, who besides you got the sauce? So I'll start with the first one. (laughs) (laughs) Who's got the most sauce in the music industry from any sector and why? Artist, media, label, manager, playlister, whoever. (laughs) Oh, shit. Um, That's a really good question. Honestly, like, honestly, I'm just going to say it, Drake. 100%. (laughs) Drake, Drake, Drake gets too much fucking critics like this guy is one of the greats and he stayed relevant for so long and is always working with the next wave no matter where they're from always like putting out even if you don't like the music he's always trying to do something slightly different with his sound and like push it Mm. forward and he's just got he uniquely brings you into his world with in a way that other people don't like he's still so relevant everyone wants to be friends with drake like like 
say 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 what you want, but there's something impressive about doing it every year. I love that Kendrick Lamar. You know, people think Kendrick Lamar's on this other level to Drake, but Drake is doing this every fucking year, every single year, and it's like I I I definitely think there are problematic issues with Drake. Like, there's no question about it. Like you know, I don't agree with everything that Drake does, but. Um, I also think Drake can be very corny. Like, of course he can, but like, but that almost makes me love him more because it's like, there's so many sides to Drake and he still stays relevant. And at the end of the day, like, if the kid from Degrassi in the wheelchair can make it to be <laughs> the kind of have the source in hip hop, that's mm. kind of inspiring, I think. <laughs> well, I love that answer. I can't say, say if Ryan is going to feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're not friends anymore. <laughs> no, I was saying that's you're speaking Mickey's language 100%. Yeah, yeah. Like, we'll talk more I, about it. I've labeled Mickey V. <laughs> we'll talk more about that after after we've wrapped. <laughs> I, not even, I just think you can't deny that he is like one of the most influential people alive. Like, when no, it comes to hip hop culture, it's like he is he is just like he, he definitely pulls a lot of sh- the strings i would say and oh, yeah. there's a reason for that like when drake got all that bullshit about oh he's got um ghostwriters it's like nearly every single major rapper you know has people in the studio with them like a lot of their friends are artists like a lot of the musicians are writing lyrics suggesting lyrics here and there oh, like yeah. you know having back and forths where it's kind of like, oh, show me what that would sound like on that beat. It's like, when you hear these things leak and, and then you're just like, he's not a serious songwriter. Oh, yeah. Come on, like, anyone that... Yeah, Drake is the Elton John of hip-hop. Um, and awesome. do you like Elton John? If <laughs> oh, you I love, love if, John. If you love oh, El- yeah. I, if you love Elton John, trust me. Yeah, the same way Tiny Dancer makes, like, every single person, like, feel something if it plays in an arena, like... Trust me, Drake could play um, the Take Care song off Take Care, even. Mm-hmm. Rihanna, I think it is. And everyone would be, like, singing it, like, like emphatic. Like, like, I just think that, yeah, people, I think it's lazy to um, to discredit Drake. We spoke about Hedy One being a pioneer right now. Drake outrapped Hedy One on that song. <laughs> I think there's a very, especially, like, from an American perspective, a lot of Americans tend to like not consider the international impact of an artist either and yeah. like i don't think people really fully weigh how huge drake is on a world scale like yeah, world scale <laughs> world scale you're talking about uk rappers would like like bow to drake like a lot, lot of uk yeah. rap fans would because you know he put gigs on a major label album like put yeah. skepta on one like, he plays like like, like, if you're a digger D, like, you can get on Drake's Instagram. I think, I think he has been like played, like, you know, and that can then, and Drake does that because he knows that he's going to give these artists that yeah. boost. I remember 21 Savage, one of his first big tracks was with Drake. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, do you know what I mean? Like, he has been the fuel in a lot of our favorite artists' careers. And I think with time, Drake will become more respected. Think of Jay Z. When Jay Z was on top, people, um, a lot when the Black Album dropped, just as many people hated Jay Z as liked him. It was like Jay Z's not as lyrical as Nas. Like Jay Z's commercial, oh, yeah. you know, dumb down cool. my uh, lines to double my dollars. Yeah, I haven't been rhyming like Common Sense. All this stuff, <laughs> and then the detachment from that era where he owned came into play, and um, it was we had a detach and we saw it, and 
that will happen with Drake. I tell, I'm telling you now, a lot of people will revisit Drake's albums, his legacy, a lot of people being like, fuck Drake. I do think a new sound needs to come in. I'm bored of like, but, but like, but Drake can adapt just like Bowie and Madonna adapted. Like he is a, he's an icon. Like, and that, put respect on Drake's name. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, like yeah, I can't deny anything you said about Drake, but it's just a a personal thing that I feel he is a very creepy human being. I agree with you. <laughs> I agree with you. There. There's no question. There's no question. Like, oh my god, the weird text of the girl, stranger. I I definitely have yeah. to kind of console Don't myself with that. But even if I take a level of detachment away from, like, that is just it's still so influential. It, like, who's got the source? The person who's got the source isn't always the best person. Like mm. a lot of assholes have got the source. Like I don't know. Like Jeff Jeff Bezos has got the source, and he is a fucking <laughs> prick. Like don't get me wrong. Like I'm, I wouldn't want to hang out in Drake's horrible, decadent marble strip club um, that I saw in the article he did, or whatever. I would just yes. I would feel out of place. I would probably. I'm talking myself out of maybe interviewing Drake in the future. That's the dream, but now I'm joking. No, but I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't be like the best person in the world, but the person who has the source ha- doesn't always. I agree. Like working with Chris Brown, it was like, what the fuck is this creepy dude doing? Like, 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 I don't know. Some of his comments, like the comment about Scissor was just a bit like, the fuck are you going on about? But I, I think a lot of it just talks to the fact he's, He's just a big dorky person who always like says the wrong thing a lot. Like he's a bit out of touch, and I don't think he's he's this bad person, but I, I don't think he's a great person either. I, but I think he's a example of someone who undoubtedly still is pulling strings. Fifteen years into being in hip hop, um, you know that that's impressive. And I think I don't think Drake's done anything to make me like not sleep at night for being a fan of. <laughs> I, I honestly, honestly don't. And maybe that I'm being fucking, I've killed my career by saying that. But at this moment in time, like, I, I don't think so. I love Drake. <laughs> of course, man. No, 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 no. All right, man. So second question. Whose level of source do you admire most outside of your life, out, outside of your life, most in your life, outside of music and journalism? <laughs> um, that's a great, great question. <laughs> oh shit, I've headbutted the mic again. Um, <laughs> I would say, I have to say my wife, Rebecca, because, uh, I don't know, just my soulmate. I love her. Um, God, this is a soppy answer, but she, she kind of provides me with a back, um, the, the structure almost to keep going. Um, she's like my best friend as well. I think if you're with someone, that's the key. You want someone who's your best friend, not just like your best partner if that makes any sense and yeah she definitely helps a lot like there's no question about that like and she's an incredible writer too she just decides not to do it but one day i think that she'll have a book out and stuff like that so yeah i definitely say her (laughs) yeah that question's a bit of a a softball and we just let you knock it out of the (laughs) (laughs) yeah could you imagine if i would have been like Oh yeah, my friend Jeff. <laughs> She'd just be like, "You fuck, no, dude, seriously, no, do me." <laughs> uh, so you brought the sauce to this interview. What journalist do you think could bring the most sauce to our next interview? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Okay. Um. Hmm. I want, I want to, I want to think about this and get this right. <laughs> Cause there's so many good, good journalists, um, great journalists out there at the moment who I think, um, are kind of deserved of 
this shout, but um, honestly, I would say um, Jesse Barnard, who's another UK writer um, from a guy from London, who I think you should read his stuff. I think he's a great, really, really great writer, and I think um, you know he just really gets music and like just is a really sound guy and just like has a great, always offers like a fresh, great perspective. And um, yeah, I don't think he always kind of gets the credit that he deserves um, necessarily. Like he does, but I think he deserves more credit. So yeah, he definitely deserves to be interviewed for this. I reckon he's great. Jesse Barnard, here's up, man. Oh. Oh, man. So Thomas, man, at the top of the show, you said something about like, you're not sure if this, like uh, when you read an article, you're not sure if like people are reading. Like, is this is this is this hitting anyone? But like, <laughs> just to let you know right now, like this is like your work has hit us. Like, oh man, that, that's so we, nice of you to say. Yeah, thank you. This is a space where we appreciate everything you're doing, everything you're doing for like journalists and just as a writer, your perspective that you offer. Like, this is a space where we appreciate that. So like, yeah, just keep going. Thanks, keep going. man. I appreciate that. That means the world to me because I think it's difficult when you don't see people and you're working a lot in an office like, I don't know like you just you do you, you you don't always have like I don't know you don't have a HR department you can walk to when you're a freelancer like like you're just kind of by yourself talking into your cat's shadow or whatever but so when you say things like that it genuinely means the world and I love all your stuff I'm genuinely like like um, I'm not going to lie and say like uh, Mickey that like, I've read um, your things but I'm going to check them out now but Brandon and Ryan I think are definitely um like future stars of like this journalism thing um so yeah if there's any editors that listen to this like yeah check their <laughs> pictures out <laughs> that's that's very appreciated i recommend uh mickey's cover story for euphoria on james blake i'd love probably, to read that what would you make it would you make a james blake what do i make of him well i mean first yeah you a fan oh d- I, I don't know how you cannot be uh of his music. i love james i love Jeez. james blake I, yeah let me tell you a crazy a story time. which i think will be which will be interesting for your podcast so when i was 16 no not 16 fuck i was in the i'd done two years at college i was supposed to go to uni and like i fucked my knee up and i was just a bit lazy so i decided to do it a third year and do a third year at college dropped out after a month and um, Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare came out <laughs> and like honestly like I would tell people at university oh yeah did loads of things in my gap year I uh, went to places I just spent all my time playing Call of Duty 4 <laughs> every second of the day I had like a 400 pound headset I sold all my old games to, like pay for and just and, and I got like playing in this clan with these other guys. One of them, my friend Ali, one of my best friends, this guy called Glenn. There's like a whole bunch of us. And there was this guy called James in the clan. And we took this so fucking seriously. I mean, like we were training like 12 hours a day, tactics on the map. You stand by the fridge over there. Like, it was just like crazy stuff. And he would play us his dubstep music. His dad was a musician, had like a studio in his house. And like, we're like, I'm convinced it was James Blake. I'm convinced of it to this day. Like, I like, I, I, in fact, I'm pretty, I'm pretty certain it, it was him. Like, because of our conversations and the music that he played me and the fact that this guy went to Goldsmiths and all these things. Um, so it was, it's been kind of crazy to watch him grow because we were just both playing Call of Duty 4 together. Like, and like, it, it, it's kind of sad because 
what happened is my friend Alid <laughs> will hate me for sharing the story. But we were playing a match one day and um he just fucked up James Blake, like he had an easy shot on someone. <laughs> this is we were such nerds and Alid was just like, The fuck are you doing, you idiot? And he just blocked all of us and went off <laughs> the chat oh, no. and and like I, I was just I just never spoke to him again. And I hope that he uh he doesn't have negative memories of me because of that. If it is him, maybe it's another James Blake who went to Goldsmiths. I was a dubstep producer, but yeah, I gave you that story because it was just like, when I see him like where Beyonce and Kendrick are, I'm like, shit, I remember when we used to take the piss out of you for eating hummus. Like, I remember one day we were like on Call of Duty 4 and this guy was like, um, James Blake, he's a lovely guy, lovely guy. I don't like really amazing guy. But he was just like, yeah, I was eating hummus and we were all like quite, from quite normal backgrounds, like just eating pasties yeah. basically and <laughs> whatever shit we ate. Uh, no, that's, that's a disservice. I ate pretty good food. Shout out to my nan who cooked it. Um, but <laughs> the, like, the, like um, we were like, oh my God, like he said hummus and we thought it was the funniest thing. We'd never heard of hummus. I never even know what hummus was, but it was just saying, and, and for hours I remember, um, like we were just like you know how you banter between friends the banter towards him was like hummus out of nowhere like you just say it in this direction <laughs> i think it was him i think it was him i hope it was him because i'd love to interview him because i think the journey from that to where he is now and he's spoken oh, in yeah. the past about playing lots of games and being depressed like yeah. i think it would just like speak i'd love to do something with him i hope he doesn't think that like yeah. i'm taking the piss out of him because i'm not like he genuinely was an incredible guy but uh, to this day like Alid, I think, like, you fucked up my friendship with James Blake. <laughs> I'll never forgive you for that shit. Like, that guy is, like, probably a genius and you fucked it for me. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, so I'll, I'll just tell you that anecdote anyway. <laughs> That's good. Well, I think that's a great way to end, end the... <laughs> How can we top that? We can't top that. Yeah, um, no, James Blake, he's got lots of links with hip hop as well, hasn't he? Like, God, like, I think he's done so many things with cool rappers. Like, oh, yeah. Um, I, th- I think he hit the studio with JPEG Mafia recently. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. They have, yeah. A, they actually, they and, have like a little artist to artist video interview thing that they did that I saw when I was Yeah, that was it. Yeah. yeah. And Channel Trey's worked with him. Um, yeah. I think he, he definitely works. Slow Tide obviously worked with him recently. Yeah, he's definitely kind of a cool guy. I like how he works oh, with yeah. like these artists. Do you know definitely. what I mean? Like, yeah. shout out to James Blake. I hope he's in a good place. Oh, he's a cool guy, dude. He talked to me for a fucking hour and a half. He was so cool, so patient. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, no, he's an amazing guy. He was very chill to talk to on those wet nights playing overgrown Call of Duty Four. And being like, why did you put the claim on there, you prick? Yeah, sorry, sorry about that, James. <laughs> <laughs> this episode of Search of Source featured Brandon Hill, Ryan Gore, and Mick Hellerback at the Central Source Creative Collective, and Mr. Thomas Hobbs. The episode is edited by me, Charlie Taylor, Fifth M Podcast Network. Music for this show is Fuck Stop by Barsity, thanks to Chill Records for the ability to use. This has been a Central Source and Fifth Element Podcast Network production. Links to Vast Teacher of Records, Central Source, and the Fifth Element can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time as we continue our search for Source.